0: Welcome to another episode of the Text Help Talks podcast, the podcast where we chat and hopefully have some fun with a host of experts covering a range of topics from education right through into the workplace. So make sure you subscribe through your preferred podcast player or streaming service so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can always join the conversation using the hashtag text help talks on Twitter. And I'd really encourage you to take part in the conversation that you're going to hear from today. It is a fascinating insight uh, from our very special guest today. Just jump on Twitter and ask any questions of Rachel and we'll put those to her after today's but, uh, broadcast. So I'm Patty McGrath or Patrick McGrath as some of you know me by and of course I'm head of education strategy here at Texthelp. At Texthelp of course it's our mission to help unlock everyone's full potential, to help everyone understand and be understood. We aim to do that through technology and by helping to spread the word around inclusion, what it is, what it can be and how we get there. We love hearing from other like-minded people who are passionate about education, accessibility and technology. And today we have a very, very special guest, Rachel Nowicki from the Dyson Institute of Engineering and Technology. So let's find out a little bit more about our guest, Rachel, or Otherwise known, and I'll be referring to her today as Ray, and apparently that, I think, was designated by the Dyson Institute, and all of your colleagues do call you that, Ray. So Ray set out as a secondary maths teacher back in 2005 and spent over a decade in this area. Whilst teaching maths had always been enjoyable, a real passion came early on in her career for additional pastoral roles, including head of year and senko. She didn't, I expect, imagine that one day she would work for Dyson. However, a dream student support advisor role came up at the Dyson Institute, bringing Ray into the world of engineering, apprentices, and higher education. This role was focused on wellbeing, mental health support, and coaching. Two years in now, and the passion for students to have what they need to thrive was in full swing. After the Dyson Institute got new degree awarding powers, a disability department was formed, currently consisting solely of Ray, and we'll explore that when we talk to her, in September 2021. So far, with the support of the amazing teams at the Institute, Ray has developed the policy and procedures in this area, putting many things in place, which we'll cover in our chat. Clearly a very busy role for Ray, but she's loving the challenge and opportunity to shape what disability support looks like at the Dyson Institute. So today we have the very, very great privilege of chatting to Ray about her work and that of the Dyson Institute of Engineering and Technology. And if you're not aware of the Dyson Institute, their mission is that every day they work to build challenging and enriching educational experiences, which are free, student-centric, and aligned with the needs of industry. And that ties into their vision, which is to develop engineering leaders of the future. We're keen to discover their approach to inclusive practice, um, particularly today, to look at the world of maths and what steps they're taking to ensure that this core subject in science and engineering is and stays accessible to all. So with that, Ray, um hopefully that bio did you justice. So a huge welcome to this episode of Text Help Talks. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be on a podcast today. <laughs> I'm quite excited about it.
0: Great. Well you're very welcome. But Rich I just want to kick off with a with a few questions as we go through and I mentioned, I suppose, in your, in your bio and the lead in there about Dyson and the Dyson Institute. And I, I suppose I talked about that in a way that, you know, everybody suddenly knew who the Dyson Institute was. But maybe you can give us a little bit of a background to the Dyson Institute. I mean, where, where did, did that develop from and what sets kind of aims and objectives as an institute? Yeah, so um,
1: the Dyson Institute was formed approximately five years ago. So we had our first lot of graduates last year so last summer Um, and it was formed from an acknowledgement particularly from James Dyson that there is a lack of engineers in the field there's an interesting need for more engineers and sort of challenging that at government level and being told then then set up an institution to to help uh, bridge that gap Um, and so the Dyson Institute was formed and for the first four for years of that, I guess, I think. Uh, make sure I get that right. Um, Warwick University have um, delivered that degree, or, or m- more specifically WMG, which is Warwick Manufacturing Group, have actually delivered the degree, although it has been on site at Dyson in the main headquarters in Murray, in Wiltshire. Um, so the course is run here, the lecturers come down and deliver it, Um, And then during that first four years, what we did is set out to get our own degree awarding powers, which we were then successful with. Um, And as of September, we've now become an independent institution um, and we can deliver our own degree. Um, And at the moment, that is just one pathway, which is um, a Bachelor of Engineering and its General Engineering degree apprenticeship. And is, um, is that a
0: first in the UK, right, um, for, for an entity such as a commercial entity such as Tyson to do that? I come
1: my to... understanding is that we're leading the way. Yes. Are they? Okay. Um, I'm aware that there are some very cool other specialist institutions. Um, yeah. But yes, I understand that we're one of the first to, to do that. And it's a super exciting place to be for that reason. We really are sort of leading the way and um we have some values at dyson around being pioneering and different and authentic and i think that we get to be all of those at the institute and really put in this new way of learning and our undergraduates are engineers in dyson from day one um and they split their week between learning and working so
0: you know it's funny right you're doing sort of lots of chats about your maths at all sorts of ages you hear about Math's anxiety, of course, and I don't want to, we're not, we won't have time probably to touch upon something like that today. But a lot of the things you hear from students, young and, and more mature, is the kind of the lack of relevancy, I suppose, with math sometimes, the abstract nature of it. And I guess with the programs you're putting in place with Dyson, the relevancy is quite immediate to what you're studying there because you're you're in a live engineering environment and there must be very, very tight direct links in there. So it must really ramp up the relevancy from from, from day one, I guess.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So our undergraduates can go and see real in-life situations that are unfolding in the workplace where they can apply their learning straight away. So from from lecture room to workplace within a week. Um, And sometimes that's not always aligned to what they're learning by other time. So it might come at different stages, but it definitely makes a huge difference. And it works both ways. So I've heard of undergraduates, because they've been in their electronics rotation, for example, when the electronics module comes up, they're feeling really prepared for that and seeing where what they were starting to pick up in the workplace comes into play in their learning. And it it happens both ways, which is really lovely to hear.
0: Brilliant. Well, let's think about in, the, in our opener there, we talked about the fact that we wanted to do explore inclusion within within the Institute. And I mean, how how do you, and I've read some pieces that you've written and we'll link to those in the show notes. We'll talk about them a little bit later, but a fascinating insight. But can you give us a kind of a nutshell overview of what the, the Institute's approach and then obviously your direct approach is um, as leading that charge to inclusion in that learning environment?
1: Yes, so I like to think that we have a bit of a three-pronged attack to inclusion that I like to talk about. So um, the first is that anticipatory side of things. So we anticipate that people are going to come in with different backgrounds, different needs, different learning styles. And we do, I think, a great job at trying to um, approach that from day one. So from day one, there's as inclusive an environment as we can possibly provide um, so some examples of that would be um, things like our lecture theatres are incredibly inclusive. There's there's screens down the side as well as at the front. There's rising desks if you need them. There's every lecture is recorded um, and you can watch it back with a transcript. Or we give notes out ahead of time. So there's lots of different formats for the information that our undergraduates need to receive. Um, we every undergraduate that walks through the door gets given a laptop to work with um and then that's where software such as EquatIO is coming in so we're also making sure there's a really good suite of software to support those undergraduates as well so it's that real so the first the first thing is that we anticipate this is going to happen and we put really good provision in place Um, the next bit is designing that bespoke support that some people might need with that higher level of need or something slightly different going on for them and we can put bespoke support plans in place, whether that's to do with the workplace or the learning environment, exams and assessments, all those sorts of things. Um, and then the third one for me, and this is something that I've been really developing since I took this role on in September, is the celebration side of things and really celebrating mm-hmm. diversity and um, what that brings to the engineering community and the student body and the workplace. Um, so it's that, yes. Yeah, so we anticipate, we design, we celebrate. That's that would be my summary, probably.
0: Yeah. So and it's good to hear a couple of things out of that. I mean, it's brilliant and it's so exciting to hear that sort of accessible by design is placed first there. You know, that's in mind first. There's no, there's no yeah. bolt-ons uh, seemingly after this in anything that you've talked about there. Of course, um, which is which is very very exciting. Um, and and I read somewhere or did I read somewhere that you screen or voluntarily screen all students? Is that right? Can you can you delve into that a little bit more just for our listeners?
1: Yeah, so all of our undergraduates. So this is only since September, since we became an independent um, institution. Um, all of our undergraduates have the opportunity when they first arrive to take part in a screening, um, which is an online assessment. And it gives back a profile to our undergraduates of the ways in which they learn, their strengths, maybe the areas they might have more difficulties in. It's broken down into the different sections um, of the brain, things like numeracy and literacy, but also verbal memory, non-verbal memory, executive function, those sorts of things. And for us, so that may highlight that someone has a neurodiverse need in one of those areas if they perhaps are slightly divergent away from from the norm, um, but it allows us to open up that conversation very early on and create an environment. I hope that, that students come in and can have that conversation with us.
0: I suppose the fascinating thing about that is that you're able, in that instance, that to focus very much on strengths and on opportunities of that neurodiversity and it's not you know being accessible by design means that you're not you're not even considering deficits there because everything you design from the ground up you know you know has has those things addressed or at least should do in an accessible environment accessible way so it must leave you to be able to I guess focus on those strengths but would you agree with that or
1: Yes, definitely. And I do think um, it's been such an interesting process to bring this on and start having those conversations because it definitely discovers people's strengths. And when um, it does also talk about difficulty, of course, and I think that's so important. Um, a large proportion of our student body is neurodiverse. Like that's one of our strengths, I think. Um, and I think is the strength for engineering to have that those different thoughts. Um, ways of pe- ways of thinking let's say brought into the industry um so I never want to undermine how difficult that can be for some people ever however it gives us a great opportunity to focus on strengths and I can just give an example of uh so a colleague that I work with was dyslexic at university for example and he's he's really happy to share that and I don't think he'll mind me saying this um that and I sat down with him one day and said this is what I want to do there's neurodiversity awareness week coming up I really want to celebrate this side of things and I sat down and showed him some of the like real positive traits that can come from different areas of neurodiversity and it was the first time that he said I've never considered that my dyslexia is a strength and I can now see why I'm good at my job and why sometimes I can see things that other people can and just that conversation has been spreading across the institute and that's you know that's a real joy for
0: me yeah and it's good to see that i mean i've noticed recently particularly you mentioned dyslexia there i mean things like the uh the tag um dyslexic thinking on linkedin now i think that was championed by me in dyslexia but you know that that irrespective of how you view that and what your individual viewpoints are on on tags or labels in that I think it gives people a voice and allows people to recognize things and it allows people to to recognize those strengths as well um, and the differences that exist. So, yeah. And and as part of that, you know, you've mentioned there about sort of the laptop and you mentioned about the multiple screens in the lecture theatres. You mentioned about different um, uh, ways to represent learning, so different types of learning materials as well. And it, it struck me when I was listening to you there and in some of the pieces I'd read about the Institute and your work before, that's very much based on sort of universal design for learning principles. Is that deliberate on your part? Like, is do you have you adopted that framework or have you kind of almost fallen into it by by simply focusing on on, on accessible
1: design? This It's a really lovely question. And I... Um, when I looked at universal design for learning I realized we do definitely Mm. take on those um, key the key ethos that they're presenting in that framework it was it is by accident if you like it's by approaching our learning with accessibility in mind as early on as possible um, that I think we are naturally falling into that framework by chance and it's definitely something I'd like to look at closer that I I don't know loads about at the moment but it's um, certainly seems to align with how we've designed our course and how we You know,
0: it's interesting. I know we were talking um, uh, previously about this, the previous conversation. But what I find when we talk about universal design for learning, just when you re- recognise uh, the, the strands, and you've you talked about reading through UDL principles, when you recognise the strands, suddenly so many educators that are like yourself, that are passionate about inclusion, that are passionate about neurodiversity, they sit up and they go, well, hold on a minute, we already do that. That's the approach we take. And sometimes these things are just good practice. You know, they don't necessarily have to have a label, I guess, around them, um, but it can be useful for others to have that label. But if you if you take that approach, whether it's UDL or whether it's the process that you've taken, is it difficult to get your colleagues um, and your peers um, on the same page on things like this, because they may well be coming, I guess, teaching in another in another um, uh, third-level institution where these things aren't, I suppose, as maybe prevalent as they are in Dyson. So is, is it difficult to get them enthused and get them on board with the strategies that you're putting in play?
1: I think that that's a really good question. And I, I think we're very blessed at the Institute because we are very much in our early stages of developing our own course and of course there's a lot of work gone into that before September of course um but we've got an academic team who want to be there like designing and creating and doing something different and I think because of that I've got some the academic team are super on board whenever I go to any of them and talk through something they they've been so receptive to like changing the look of the PowerPoint to make it more accessible or whatever it is that they can do and presenting information in different ways and when someone's really struggling like offering that one-to-one support with them and they've been really brilliant I think the challenges. Everyone's very busy because we're yeah. in this this phase, and um, so I think it's just my job to make sure that that's still in people's minds because I really appreciate that I this is what I live and breathe every day, and I feel passionate about it, and I do it all the time. Um, and just remembering that that's not everybody's every day, and so it's just bringing it to the forefront for people. And I also think I've started that journey as well with our line managers in the workplace, um, right. and that's that's tricky just. Merely because of the size of the organisation and the number yeah. of line managers that might end up working with our undergraduates, and um to, you know they're not in the educational world; they're, they're in the engineering workforce. So it's very different environment. So um I think again, some very, very on board, super helpful people in there. But it's just spreading the word to as many people as possible and put it on it's their agenda. I
0: guess. Not sounding to me like you're very busy at all, any Anyway, like you don't you <laughs> have much to do there, but yeah Um, i think i think what's what's fascinating about what you said there is just that whole i I get and you said at the outset i think you used the word blessed you know with that that body of staff that you have that culture that's already kind of there and building and i suppose the challenge is always to sustain that through what what are busy times i mean I talk to people a lot about, you know, all these small changes you can make just to help with accessibility. Just, just change your font or increase the contrast. And people are like, do you realize buddy, how busy I am and how actually challenging you've just the challenge you've thrown down to me? This one thing is going to take me three weeks of my life to change my presentations. But I guess you've got a little bit of a more fresh approach to it with with starting as you mean to go on um, and building yes. that as you go out. So let's talk about. I don't know. Well. It's maybe not your favorite subject because you're here to talk about inclusion and inclusive practice. But I want to talk about maths for a bit, if that's okay, because we're we're thinking about the barriers that exist in learning with maths, um, uh, particularly for uh, for neurodiverse students, and I. What sort of challenges have you seen, um, you know, either at the Institute or your, your previous teaching career? Uh, what challenges have you seen that neurodiverse students actually face with maths? What are the main blockers? What are the challenges that are there? And I'm not even thinking digitally at this point in time, just generally, like what are the challenges that they face?
1: Um, so I can certainly speak from from the institute perspectives. I should probably just set the scene a little bit and our undergraduates it's it's a high achievement level to come in we have very high achieving undergraduates Mm -hmm. it's a it's a competitive process to get here um and they are incredible people very determined they they're incredible student body um and for me the the difficulties that I've probably witnessed and and I've really picked this up I was a support advisor for two years and I that meant I met monthly with a whole year group of people and really got to understand the ups and downs of the course and what's going on and I think um, a lot of our undergraduates come from doing mathematical and science-based A-levels and they get here and we have a big emphasis on coursework it's not just exam it's very sort of 60-40 exams coursework for the first two years and then it switches the second year is like 60% coursework so it's it's really important and I think it's that level of academic writing that includes mathematical content and trying to bring those two elements together that's I would say by far the biggest challenge for our undergraduates.
0: Yeah so if if I think about that so I suppose you maybe got two challenges there you got the accessible challenge you know maths that they come across in papers or in a previous thesis from somewhere else or some academic papers making sure that's accessible um yes. i guess i mean i see that as a challenge but it's interesting what you say and i never quite thought about it in those terms that actually and, and, and a bit of background from my perspective w- when we talk about um very naturally talented mathematicians and engineers we talk about at a very high maths level there's often, particularly for those who perhaps have had dyslexia or, or or live with dyslexia, you know, they they may also have sort of dyscalculia traits, which actually do impact very fundamental basics of maths, but don't necessarily impact that very high level of maths that they're engaged with. So, so I mean, that's an interesting parallel there. But I guess that ability to articulate maths and it's probably maybe fair to say, and you can clarify this maybe and, and tell me better. Is it the tools can get in the way? Is the frustration of the tools get in the way of, right, I am now writing an academic piece of coursework or a full, or or, or or my full dissertation. And at that stage, actually it's the tools make it difficult for me to express the mathematical content. Is is that, would that be fair or or no?
1: Yes, I do think the, so for example, trying to to, create equations in the context of an academic report or essay is, is challenging. Um, and it's an added challenge on top of creating something very literacy-based, which a lot of undergraduates are not necessarily used to, having done very scientific A-levels. And a high percentage of our, of our undergraduate body are dyslexic. That's what that's our biggest need by far. Mm. But also ADHD, autism and dyspraxia are also there amongst our, our needs. And I think, yeah, it's, so it's all the added challenges of doing this yeah. complicated piece of work, but then being able to produce um, yeah, mathematical content in that. Especially, I think, if you're quite a gifted mathematician and it goes quite quickly, like having to get that into an yeah, IT format I, is quite frustrating, I
0: imagine. You can with your brain in terms of articulating yes. it and a piece of coursework. Yeah, that's, yeah. That, yeah, that, that's interesting. I suppose I suppose the, the digital world that you live in, you talked about every every student gets a laptop. And I guess the coursework that you talk about is always going to be digital. I guess the learning environment is always going to be digital. So has that, does that then present its own individual sort of challenges just in the same way?
1: Yes, yes. Um, all coursework is digital so absolutely um it is and we've obviously also been at a stage of setting up the systems to support that so it's we're still so in uh, early on in our stages as well that is yeah it creates can create quite a challenge
0: but on on the flip side of that then we're talking about students uh, and we talked earlier about sort of getting your your colleagues and your peers on board um uh with the inclusive approach does that mean that you have a an an education piece to do with your colleagues to make sure that, that whatever they're designing in terms of course assignments and, and coursework set through your uh, your LMS type systems, are, that has to have an inclusive approach to it, I guess, as well. So so they need access to the same level of tools as the students do?
1: Yes. So um, the, I don't think I've necessarily described this to you, but the way that we've been developing our um, software offering is um it's, it's been going on for most of this academic year and I am lucky to have a lot of um, positive things in my role and being able to onboard new software without much of a challenge financially is great. But actually onboarding software to a Dyson laptop that will interact with some very sensitive information that we need to protect um, hasn't been easy. Like That's a really long process for us. It needs to go through privacy measures. It needs to go through cyber security measures. And um, so the process to get some of this software has been a long one, um, but it's very much been planned in a staged approach. And the way that we've done that is we've worked with an external company to help um, advise us on what software would be great because Dyson itself has loads of great software, but it's not necessarily based in the educational environment so it was about getting some more of those educational software on board Um, and then we had a series of training with that company that our staff all invited to to get more knowledge for them and we're currently in the phase of now bringing the the undergraduates on board and really promoting it so it's been it's taken a little while but um we're at a really good stage now but definitely part of that has been getting the staff on board along the way
0: and If it it, take a step back then maybe from that and you talked about getting that external company involved and kind of support and the resources, I guess, you have internally. But if you think about that, the challenges that you threw out with maths earlier on um, that we all see and we all identify with and know they need to be addressed, like when you started to explore a maths solution uh, for inclusive practice, like, what, what were you actually aiming to achieve in that? I mean, specifically, I mean, yes, I, I, I get, you know, you want a more inclusive environment. You you want all of that. You need all of that. But like specifically, what was it about for you when you said, right, here's my shop. Unless I need to go out and I need to do, I need to get a piece of software that helps me here. Like, what were you trying to achieve with that?
1: Um, I think it is, in a nutshell, I wanted to be as inclusive as we could. And it's that and Participatory approach that we were talking about earlier, yeah. making this um, as approachable as possible, as accessible as possible. And um, I guess when I set out, there was a slightly broader picture of we don't have the right kind of software for an educational have all this, we do have software that Dyson offers, but it's not quite fitting the educational yeah. side of things. And it was about developing that and useful strategies. And I will admit before doing that, so it was the external company that suggested um, several software and, and EquatIO being one of them. Um, and I must admit, I hadn't even been aware that that existed. And um, this might be jumping ahead some questions potentially, but I will say that every time I've explained to an undergrad, we've got this software, this is what it does, I've trialed it, and anyone was allowed to come along and be part of that trial. Mm-hmm. Um, every single time that fail, their minds have been blown at what that software can do, and the fact that that solved so many problems that they had that I possibly hadn't even identified. <laughs> I just knew <laughs> that I wanted this more inclusive software suite. Um yeah but every, without fail and, and I, there was a lovely moment last Friday where what I've been doing is all of our year groups meet fortnightly as a year group just together and in between as a whole institute and um, I popped in and I've just been doing a, um, a spotlight on software just to really like get the, the undergraduates on board and I went in and I did a bit of a stint it was actually on some of the office features and I said next time I'm going to talk about this software we have equatio and someone in the room put their hand up said can I just say something I said of course he said I can't tell you how helpful equatio has been it is so incredible I can take my handwritten notes in one note and snap it and then put it into a word format like um and someone else said ah but will it read really bad handwriting? And I just did a demo there and then just using my finger on the (laughs) handwriting tool. And just that response for me is what I'm looking for, is that buy-in from the undergraduates that has actually made a difference to them. That
0: must be, I suppose, the strength, though, in the model that you're pursuing where you go, look... I, I'm going to line up the, the, the best tools that I or external companies can advise us to, but that you've identified and say, look, I'm going to give these students are going to have the toolkit that they need for success, irrespective of their differences um, or their individual strengths. They've got those tools. But the surprising thing, I guess, that comes out of it are moments like that where you go, i I never thought about using it like that. Or I never thought that if you give that breadth of tools and that, that UDL approach of, look, we'll just give them multiple ways to express that or generate that or engage with that maths thing. Yeah. Then that sense of independence and discoverability of, oh, I can do it this way and I can do it that way. And that's for me, I agree with you on that. That's the thing. I like to think I know a wee bit about EquatIO and they get me up to talk about it loads. And then you just go and you'll go into like a year eight class and there'll be an 11 year old there and they'll go, yeah, but have you seen this? And you're like, no, <laughs> <And> you, <laughs> yeah. you learn something new as well about not so much about the feature, but about how they're using it to really, really yeah. help learn out. And And I find that fascinating and we get, and I always talk about with technology in particular, how much we need to provide the opportunity to use it. And if we provide the opportunity to use it, whatever that technology is, that we see all these different outcomes that, that, I, mean, I started this question going, what, you know, what did you want to achieve by this? And some of those things I'm sure you didn't ever set out to achieve, but you're achieving them with your students.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that was my point. I just I started out just wanting an inclusive software suit, but I, I couldn't predict just the outcomes that that would have for the undergraduates and the impact that could have.
0: Totally. So, you know, one of the one of the questions that I would thought about in advance um, actually, you've almost answered, which is how do you envisage students using Equatio? But I think the thing is, there for me, you know, you're envisaging them, some of the ways they're using it you could never have envisaged. So yeah. they're being created by it. Would that be a fair enough summary of it? Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's um, when we did the we launched it as a sort of lunch and learn session, and people came along, and we got the trial up and running on their laptops, and immediately I showed them a few things, but immediately they were running with it, and yeah. I think the way I like to think about it is um, well they immediately try to break it like I'm going to push it to its limits what can it do and I think that's great a great approach and immediately they were telling me in that session oh but if you go into the menu and do this you can change that and I was like oh yeah (laughs) you know um, and they are they can run with it so much faster than I can
0: (laughs) yeah no absolutely and that's the great thing to watch though isn't it again it's about Mm -hmm. giving giving it the opportunity I guess um See, you talked about there in terms of students, you did sort of uh, lunch and learn. Um, but it, as you look ahead to next year and equipping students um, with the tools, like w- what does that, that beyond that simple onboarding piece where like the tech deployments is one thing and then the, the initial student introduction, how do you, with tools like this, and obviously you're using many other tools as well, how do you keep momentum with students? Um, how do you keep that going and ensure that they're actually getting what they need from it? It's, it's not about you know value for money it's not about you using the tools that you paid for it's about making sure obviously that they they get their use out of it and it, it helps them in learning how do you keep that going
1: um so we've got i've thought about this in a lot of different ways actually and i think it's so important because the lunch and learn i did during your neuro, neurodiversity celebration week as part of that awareness piece of things that we're we're doing at the institute inclusion and it was really important to me that we don't only talk about those things during neurodiversity celebration week that it becomes an ongoing drip feed of information that's really important to our undergraduates and um so we've done this as I mentioned, this sort of spotlight on software where I'm going into regular meetings and I'm going once a month to each year group and just presenting something more and just keeping that conversation going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also about getting staff on board and the more that we see staff perhaps using it in the lecture environment, for example, that that can help um, keep that momentum going. Um, And the other thing for me is like moving forward because this has been quite a new thing for us. Um, What's really lovely about the site licence approach is that our our undergraduates who are under uh, Warwick or WMG can also access this, which is great. Um, But around about sort of October time, once the initial induction period is settled and people are at work and started their lectures, I intend to, um, the external company that supports us to come in and run workshops um and I would like that to be an annual thing so that during the first term um that any of our undergraduates are with us they will have the opportunity to attend workshops that are designed specifically to help them understand what software is on their computer and how that can help them in their course and in their workplace and um, that will become an annual thing so to make sure that that's that's things um and then it's I think all opportunities so the other thing is um, I've not mentioned these people and they're incredible people the student support advisors so each year group has a student support advisor and that means they get access to a one-to-one conversation on a minimum of a monthly basis to discuss anything they want like whether that's time management whether it's um, stress management whether it's learning independent skills about living away from home or whatever it is Um, and I think Making sure that that team of people are really aware and they can see that when there's perhaps an issue coming through on a one to one basis that they know they can suggest software that will support that or come talk to me and, and we can talk yeah. it through. So it's that I think coming through the staff from different ways, whether that's the support team, whether it's the academic team. Um, the workplace team or myself that these conversations are just able to happen as often as
0: possible. Yeah, no, absolutely, You're really important and, and solid plan. And you mentioned something there, and I just want to come back to it. And I apologize, Ray. It's going to sound it's going to sound horribly commercial, and I genuinely don't mean it to sound horribly commercial. Um, because w- what's interesting is the conversation in higher ed and in further education, even in schools, about software. And it's that you mentioned it in almost a commercial sense there, where you said, oh, we have a site license, right? And of course, for anybody listening who's going site license, every student then has access to the same tool. But obviously there's always that conversation ongoing where a school or a college or a higher ed institution go, well, can I not just give it to the pupils and the students who need it and that have been assessed or that have expressed to me that they have a particular challenge? And I just love, just as we start to wrap up here today, like what what's your view on that? And um, Because you talked about it earlier, about giving everybody access to the laptop and all of the tools. Why is that so important that everybody has access to the same thing without asking?
1: It's so important to us because particularly for our environment and for engineering, for us, collaboration is really important. Okay. And I, that's, well, that's just one reason. Um, so a lot of our coursework is group based and it, it makes it so much easier when people have access to the same software and can edit things and that sort of thing. So that's one reason. Um, But also, one thing I've really learned since being here is people come here with unidentified needs. Um, There will be, for all the people that are diagnosed or highlighted with something, there are other people who may have similar struggles that are currently not diagnosed or highlighted. And I've seen that a lot because of the... um, type of student we get. We are doing an engineering degree apprenticeship that naturally attracts um, a lot of neurodiverse people, which I think is incredible. A lot of them have had lots of support and masking strategies up until this point. And then at our level of learning, a lot of challenges come into play. We talked about that independence of learning, but it's also the independence outside of learning, like the learning to manage life um and all of these challenges and a workplace for some of them that might be the first time they've been in a work environment and all of these challenges i think sometimes um we start to see needs that hadn't been previously identified and what this allowing the software for everyone does is it supports those that are either identified or not identified um, as well as allowing that collaboration between all the different styles of learning. Um, yeah. People who like to dictate, people who like to handwrite, people who prefer to use the latex coding, you know, it just, it suits everyone.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I tend to talk a lot in, in a similar way that you've talked about that learning iceberg and it's a, it's a kind of a, a keynote and a presentation that, that I do in lots of places, but, I think the importance of that is to reinforce exactly what you've said, which is, you know, we're familiar with that 10%. And I know, you know, they're just rough figures, the iceberg analogy, but that, that percentage of students that sit above the waterline, okay, we know what their individual challenge is. They've been screened or they've been assessed or worked with them, they've identified. But the sheer volume of students that are sitting underneath that waterline that just kind of get on with things because that's the way they've always done it when they could be a of the support. And that's the thing that for me, I'm most passionate about addressing in anything I do. And so I'm so glad. And, we, and genuinely, Ray, we didn't talk about this before today. No, no that So, <laughs> so we're, we're just on the same wavelength, which is good. And that's definitely, for me, a, a big text help thing as well, It's to, is to help everybody. Um, understand and be understood as we always talk about. So we've talked about a lot there, Ray. You know, you've clearly an awful lot going on there. You've achieved um, a lot of really wonderful things um, uh, over the recent period of time in your role in Dyson. But what's next to take on? You know, is it about embedding? Is it about um, making sure that you continue to be inclusive, um, which I'm sure you want to do? Is it about new projects that are coming on board? What's the priority for, for the year ahead in your role at Dyson?
1: So I've got a lot of things that I want to focus on. A big one is embed all this great practice we've been building up this year is making sure that that is um, becomes part of our ethos and is just there all the time. A really lovely thing that's been happening and I hope it's because we've been opening up the celebration conversation as well as the difficulty conversation. Um, undergraduates are coming to me saying they want to be a voice for disability yeah. and for neurodiversity and they're really keen to um, advocate and make make it inclusive with us. So working with the undergraduates and with undergraduate voice, it's really important. Um, our academic team is constantly growing because we're, we're growing that side of things. So I think working with them, you mentioned about coursework assignments, and I really want to make sure that that's done in the most inclusive way possible. And a big one for me is workplace, is making sure that we're getting the the real we've I think we've got some really leading adjustments that we put in place for our academic side and I think we're getting there in the workplace but my understanding of that and developing that is something that I really want
0: to look at moving forward. I think I can only give you one piece of advice after hearing all of that I'm really, and that's just make sure you get a good rest up this summer because there's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's clearly a lot of work ahead um, which is great but it's exciting I guess at the same time. You know, I think
1: it's is super exciting, and it's really important not just go. Oh, I made a good start and rest. I think I definitely want to keep that momentum of, of um, you know, I really want our approach to inclusion to be sector leading. And I don't yeah. want to rest on that. I want to keep moving. With it.
0: Clearly leading the way there, and you know, one of whenever I joined Text Help, you know, we have a, we have our words that you know describe our culture, and and one of the words there is empowerment you know and it, it allows us to sort of move on with things to push things ahead to, to drive initiatives without necessarily asking for permission at times which is great but it strikes me that that you feel empowered in the role that you're in you're clearly given you know support and tools and access to finance and stuff there that can really help drive things forward and that's that's really really exciting to hear about um so on 4c right we've got a We've got to wind up our podcast today. It's been a, a wonderful sort of hour uh, spent with you, just talking through these steps. Uh, there was lots of stuff covered. You know, your view um, on uh, on on what the what the Dyson Institute have put in place, what you've been able to achieve in your role. You know, we talked about the site licenses, and more importantly, never mind site license. The, the availability for every student, irrespective of their needs or identified needs or their barriers that they're facing to have access to the right tools. Um, for me, what was really exciting about today was actually looking at that accessibility first strategy. You know, when you opened up today and you talked about you know, the multiple screens and the multiple different formats and things. That's really exciting because that's the stuff we really want to inspire other people to do. So look, thank you for your inspiration today and your work to date. um Hopefully we'll stay in touch. I would encourage any of our listeners to absolutely join the conversation using the hashtag TextHelpTalks on Twitter. Do ask Ray a question. I'm sure she'll be only too happy to answer. And Ray, are you on Twitter? I never thought to ask you this before today. Can we follow you on no. Twitter
1: or... I am not currently on Twitter. We definitely have Dyson Institute um, accounts, which are worth following. Instagram's brilliant. They, we've got a team that just really put good content out there. Um, That's perfect. So what, what we'll do, Ray is there. We'll,
0: put, <laughs> we'll put those in the show notes. And if people want to know just generally more about the Dyson Institute, um, where, where can they find out more?
1: Yeah, so we've got our website, dysoninstitute.com do check out the um, Instagram that we put out. I also did write a piece in Advance HE, so a blog around our approach to inclusion, um, so, well, to neurodiversity specifically. So please feel free to check that out as well.
0: Brilliant. Uh, And what we'll do is, again, we'll put those in the show notes and we'll make sure everybody has access to those. And if it's okay with you, um, after this episode goes out, I will, on my own Twitter channel and the Text help channel, will will link out those notes as well. I would encourage everybody to read the blog um, that Ray had put out. Um, I read it uh, a week or so ago and found it absolutely brilliant and and it was a shame that I hadn't come across it before now. Maybe it was only out a week ago, uh, Ray, I don't know, but um, uh, it was a really, really good piece and I think summed up your approach and the Institute's approach to inclusion. um, A really, really good read. So, Ray, thank you so much. Uh, It's been a, a brilliant hour spent with you today. Um, and I'll send you on your way today to go do what you've been doing for quite some time now, which is change the world with your approach to inclusion. Uh, Thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Hadi. Thank you.